Our scripture reading for this evening comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. This is the word of the Lord. For the past few months, we've been looking into the life of David, the narrative of David, And that's the longest presentation of a single human life in all of ancient literature. Not just the Bible, but all of ancient literature. And whenever you read or study or hear about the life of one person over a very long span of time in the scriptures, what that teaches you really is what makes, what really makes or breaks a life. And so far we've been looking at David. David is in caves. He's fighting wars, civil wars. He's constantly fighting. He's constantly on the run. What does that tell you about the Christian life? A lot of times a Christian life is marked by life in the caves, in suffering, fighting in wars, on the run. This passage is very, very interesting. It starts at the top of the chapter, and uh, we just read it, but he says, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies... The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. What's going on here? David is getting rest from his surrounding enemies. And uh, what that means is that David's finally starting to experience military success. His country is starting to stabilize economically and civilly and, uh, and politically. And so the nature, the climate of his environment is improving. Things are looking up for Israel as a nation. David starts to experience success. And now he's got this house that's got cedar panels. It's incredibly beautiful, incredibly fragrant, incredibly expensive. And he says to Nathan, his prophet, the prophet, he says, it's not right that I'm here living in this palace, in this house, while the Lord is living in a tent, in this tabernacle which by now it's been over you know, hundreds of years old. It's probably moldy and, and threadbare. And, and so David says, I want to build God, God a house. I want to build him a temple. 
And Nathan, Nathan says, uh, that makes a lot of sense. You have money, you have wealth, you have success, and you want to build a temple for God. That sounds great. Uh, but then verses four to five. But that night, God came to Nathan, and he says, no, I don't want David to build me a house. Why not? There are three main reasons why. And we're going to go through several application points after that in a very, very short amount of time. We're going to learn that our God is an empathic king. He's a gracious king. And he's an eternal king. Our God is an empathic king, a gracious king, and an eternal king. First, he's an empathic king. Verses 6 to 7, God says, In all the years that I was in the wilderness with you, in all the years that you were in the desert, in all these years of suffering, did I ever ask you for a temple? Did I ever ask you for a house? No. And here's the reason why. He says, I actually live with my people. I live with my people. I dwell with them. My people are wandering. That means I'm wandering. My people, whatever my people experience, I experience. If my people still don't have establishment and security and prosperity, uh, as, as all the other countries do, then, then I'm not going to enjoy that. And it's true that although David, he experienced success and he experienced uh, security and he experienced uh, prosperity and peace, not everybody in his country was experiencing all of that. As in most countries, only a certain percentage of the country will actually experience that to the full. And God's saying, I don't want to live like a king when my people still have needs. I'm going to live with my people. I want to experience what my people experience. If my people are poor, then I'm going to be poor. If my people are suffering, then I'm going to suffer. It's amazing, if you think about it, it's amazing that God would say something like this. What he's really telling David is, we're not there yet. We're not really ready for a house. He's an empathic king. And uh, second, the second point is that he's a gracious king. Remember, David, I took you from the, from the pasture. I took you when you were with the sheep. That, that you should be a prince over my people. That's what he says. You, you know, I made you who you are. You were once a shepherd. You were once in the pasture. I made you who you are. You used to just follow sheep. In other words, until I got a hold of you, now you, didn't, you, didn't, you weren't able to lead a nation. It's all by sheer grace. It's because of me. In other words, David, you can't do anything for me. You can't do anything for me. You can only do things through me. That's what he says. It's all by grace, by sheer grace. By, by grace, you have, ex- you have success. See, you will not build me a house. In fact, I am going to give you a kingdom, a dynasty. Now, this passage is an incredibly, if you know anything about biblical history, this is an incredibly pivotal passage, tremendously significant in the Bible. Now, why? We know that throughout history, if you look at archaeological records, it was very typical for a king in those days, if he was starting to experience military success, if he was starting to experience prosperity or peace, that he would build his God some form of temple. You see that all throughout history, that a king that would experience success in his reign would evidently build a temple then for his God. Then after some time, an oracle would then come from the temple and tell the king, the Lord is going to bless you. Your God is going to bless you with even greater victory, greater success. David here is assuming the same thing. But what happens here? 
What does God say? No. God says no. That's absolutely remarkable. He goes completely against history. He says no. Why? Every other religion works on the principle, you build a a house for God, and then God will bless you. You do something for God, then God will bless you. God here says no. I'm a God of sheer grace, he says. I will build you a house. Every other religion, the blessing comes conditionally. But with the God of the Bible, this divine blessing, it's received unconditionally. God's saying, I'm unlike any other so-called God that you've ever known because I will bless you sheer, just sheer grace, out of sheer grace alone. And that's absolutely applicable today. Now, a lot of us here says, well, I believe in God. I don't believe in other gods. You think? You do. You do believe in other gods. Think of it this way. The thing that occupies your thoughts, that thing that occupies your anxieties, that thing that defines your happiness, that thing that that consumes your efforts, your labor, that hope that actually owns your soul, that is your God. So if you're putting, for instance, if you're putting all your thoughts and all your happiness and all your work and all your soul into making money, then you need to build the house. And if you build it, you're going to be happy. You're going to be, uh, maybe God will bless you. Maybe that God will bless you. But if you don't, what's going to happen? You're going to be filled with anxiety, filled with confusion, filled with bitterness, filled with fatigue. That's how you know. If that defines you, then you've made something else your God. If you put all your thoughts and happiness and labor and your soul into just building a family, then you're the one that's building it. You're, you're still building it. And if you build it, if you're successful at that, you're going to be content. You're going to be happy for that moment. But if you fail or if your children turn out poorly or, if, you know, you, feel, you, you know what's going to happen? You're going to feel cheated. You're going to feel used up. You're going to feel like you've wasted your best years. If you put all your, all your thoughts and your happiness and your labor and your soul into your love life, you're going to be the one working, and you will feel it. You're going to work, and you're going to build. And if you build it, you're going to feel fulfilled. You're going to feel satisfied. But if that relationship is failing, you're going to fall into despair. That's how you know. You see that? You get that? But if you build on the gospel, God says, I don't want you to build me a temple. You can rest. You can have peace. You get it? God's saying, the way to approach me is completely different than any other religion. Other religions say, you've got to follow their way. Right? And if you follow their way, if you, if you obey their way of approaching God, you will never truly experience me. That's what God is saying. All of the gods, they say it's conditional. It's conditional on your ability to work, your ability to succeed in the things that I'm asking you to do. But to approach me, you can't succeed. That's the essence. You can't succeed in approaching me. It's all by sheer grace. So it's not really based on how much you work. What's more demonstrative is how well you rest in me. Do you get that? So on one hand, you have an empathic king that wants to live and dwell with his people. On the other hand, you have this gracious king that says it's not based on your record, it's based on my record. It's not based on your faithfulness, it's based on my faithfulness. It's not based on your goodness, it's based on my goodness. 
how does it happen? Well, we have the eternal king, our last point. You see, David, was prom- David he made this promise. And God said, no. What that means is sometimes you pray and God shuts doors. God just closes doors. And you don't really understand why. And that calls us to trust in God. It calls us to submit to God, whether you understand it or not, whether you agree with him or not. In this case, God sends Nathan to speak to David to explain why. What does that tell you? We need community. We absolutely need community in our lives. Good, Christian, godly community who can sometimes explain the reason why, uh, at least personally, why God is shutting doors in our lives. Perhaps they know. Perhaps there's wisdom there. Perhaps the word explains that. But why? Because, you know, what happens here? God comes back. Nathan comes back and he says, David, God has made a counter promise to you. He says, I will build you a house. That's what's going on here. When David talks to God about building a house, he's talking about a physical structure, a physical house. But when God comes back and he says, no, actually, I'm going to build you a house, he's not talking about a literal building. He's talking about a dynasty. He says, I'm going to build in you a kingdom. He says, I promise to make your descendants a dynastic kingship. And, you, and I'm going to do so graciously and unconditionally commit myself to those people, to your people, regardless, regardless of their merit, regardless of their pedigree, regardless uh, whether neither death nor sin nor time will break this commitment. That's really, if you read the gist of what's going on here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God's promise to David, he says, neither sin nor death nor time will break this commitment that I've made. That's verses 12 to 13. That's what he's saying. And then he goes to verses 14 and 15, and he starts talking about sin. And basically what he says is, many of your descendants are going to be sinful. Remember Jonathan and David? He says, he says, from now on, the Lord is witness between your descendants and mine forever. That's covenantal love. He says, your, many of your descendants will be sinful, but that will not stop my commitment to you. Not even death. Not sin, death will stop my commitment to you. That's covenantal love. It's like Jonathan to David. May the Lord be a witness between your descendants and mine forever. That's what he says. An eternal king forever. And, and God says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Now, he's not exaggerating this. In verse 16, he's not exaggerating this. In fact, he repeats it twice. A lot of times, what's exaggeration when you're talking on that level? Usually, it's a lower person looking to a higher person and saying, may you last forever. May people be loyal to you forever. We're waxing poetic a lot of times. In many ways, we can say we're being sycophantic. We're, we're kissing up in many ways. There's no need for God to do that with his people. God is, he repeats it twice, speaks down to David and says, you will last forever. Your kingdom will last forever. This is God talking to a human being. God is promising that one of David's descendants will not just prolong the kingdom, but reign over the kingdom, the one that will last forever. And that's the entire story of the Bible. The gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom began as a paradise, and then what happened was the curse. Man rebelled against the king, and with that, the world fell into decay because of the curse. 
And that's why we have war, and that's why we have disease, and that's why we have broken families and broken relationships. That's why we have death. It's why we have natural disasters. It's why there's racism. It's why there's conflict, why there's always discontent, a dissatisfaction in our souls. What's going to heal it? You know, in Psalm chapter 96, in Psalm chapter 96, um, it says that when the Lord rules, when the king returns, the trees are going to sing and they're going to dance. What that means is that the coming of the king, the return of the king, it makes trees sing and dance. Now, how does it do that? If you remember the movie or, I guess, the story of Beauty and the Beast, right, the, animation, the animated cartoon, right, Beauty and the Beast, you see the coming of the true prince, the coming of the king, it restores everything that was once good in that kingdom. So you have clocks and candelabras and teacups and, and uh, carpets. They're not just made better. They're not made of the better clocks or better candelabras or better teacups or better carpets. They're actually restored to be even fuller what they were originally designed to be, what they originally were. There's a restoration that takes place. And all the stories point to the ultimate story of the gospel, this coming of the true king. And that what, what, what that means is that when the king returns and the curse is broken, it's that kingship that's going to make you everything that you were once designed to be. Right now we have limitations. But one day when the king returns, the trees will be unbounded by their limitations. They will sing. They will dance. And that's what being under the true kingship of Christ, if the true kingship of Christ of the eternal, returning, the eternal returning king, if he's coming back and we're under his kingship, and if it's the trees, even the trees are singing and dancing, then what will happen to you and I? What will happen to you and I? What will you and I be able to do? If the trees today are currently just a mere shadow of themselves, then so are you. So am I. Do you get that? We're heading into a period that's commonly known as the Advent. And, the wor- and that concept of the Advent is the anticipation of the King, the coming of the King, Jesus Christ. The baby that was born in a manger, not just as our Savior, but he was born in the line of David. He was born. It was, it was the promise of God. And on the cross, we know that he literally overcame death. He literally rose triumphant over the grave. And that means that he literally overcame sin and he paid the debt that the human race owed to justice, that they owed because of the curse, because of sin in our lives. And think, if, that, that, if you really believe that, that means that Jesus triumphed over time, even time itself, that the Son of God became a baby, the eternal God, became a baby, and rose triumphant to reign forever. He transcended time. And, and that's because Jesus, you know, the Hebrew author says that Jesus is the, if you look at Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus is the exact representation of God, the radiance of his glory. Yet he became a baby. John chapter 1 says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling with us. You know what that means? He's the empathic king. He made his dwelling with us. If my people are suffering, then I will suffer. That's what that means. The God who promises. God says, I don't want you to build me a house. I will dwell with my people. I will suffer with my people. I will live with my people. Then the God who promised this, he literally became homeless. 
Jesus says, foxes have holes. The birds in the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. He became homeless. The eternal king became homeless. He literally wandered and suffered and was killed. He suffered. That's the impact of king. Every other religion says, I build God a house, then God will bless me. But Christianity says, God will build. God will bless unconditionally. Because every other religion says that you give God a good record, then God will bless you, then God owes you. But Christianity says God gives you a perfect record through his son, his perfect son, Jesus Christ. And we need to cling to him. And that means we can live for him. And to live for him means what? To live in joy, in gratitude, in just looking at and gazing at his beauty, the attractiveness to his glory because we have access to that glory. We have access to that beauty. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news. The gospel means good news of the kingdom. You know, if you feel like you have to live up to the standards, then it's all on you. That's tremendous pressure, tremendous responsibility, and that will never be good news for you. But knowing that that is our call, that is how we're called to live, but in our weakness, Jesus Christ came and took our place And so he replaced our record with his record and took on our record for us. Now you have love. Now you have the the only love that lasts and the only love that is eternal. And that's what the birth of Christ really means. He is triumphant over death. We know that he rose again. He is triumphant over death, over sin, over time itself. That is an empathic king, tremendously powerful, but it's a gracious king. That's what that means. He's an empathic king, and he's a gracious king. We have access to empathic, gracious king. Now, what does that mean? With the remaining time that we have, I have six very quick applications, very, very quick applications. I'm going to really run through these in about five minutes because we're actually going to elaborate this in an upcoming sermon. And so it's very practical and yet very quick. So we're going to just kind of zip through this. First, it means that if you believe, if you see that Jesus is an empathic king and a gracious king and the eternal king, the one whom we owe our lives, then first, it means that he's a renewing king. God promises that he will come to us. We don't have to, you can't work to get to him. The Christian life is not just, I'm saved. It can't be. It's not just, I'm saved. Uh, it means that God is going to restore. He comes in and he restores. It's not just we escape. We're saved, so we escape to heaven. It's the kingdom of God. Revelation chapter 21, we see that the, city of, the kingdom is a city that comes down to earth. And the king will return to us, his people. So that, what that means that, is that we are fallen and we are broken, but that we're redeemable. That means that your home is redeemable. Your relationships are redeemable. Your workplace, you may be the only Christian there, but your workplace is redeemable. It's actually redeemable. And that the work that you do there, because you are the one doing it, is a redeemable work. And a church can be a redeemable place. And so it's that our lives then, we're called to a life of justice. Not just individual conversion, but a corporate restoration, a corporate prosperity, a corporate peace, a corporate hope, because he's a renewing king. 
And he's an eternal king, and he's a gracious king, and he dwells with his people because of that. Now, second, what that means is that he's a giving king. God gave up everything. He gave up his son, and Jesus gave up all of himself. He emptied himself. That's what we read. In other words, he became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Well, then we have to practice to understand that, to connect with that, because he dwells with us and in us. We practice radical giving. Thirdly, he's a worthy king. If Jesus is a king, that means that, <laughs> that, means that uh, what he says, how he speaks to us is unconditional. He receives us unconditionally, but then there's no such thing as, oh, I'll obey if my questions aren't answered, or I'll obey if God satisfies me, or I'll obey if he fulfills my prayers or requests. It's unconditional. The obedience to our king, remember, he's a king. The obedience to our king is unconditional. And and he's worthy. Our king is worthy. He gave unconditionally. We receive unconditionally. He gave, he transcended time and sin and death. And that makes him, fourthly, a trustworthy king. We don't just trust in him. We can trust him. We have to look at the word. We have to understand and know his word. Read his word. Grow. If you want to grow in character, if you want to grow in, in understanding God's attributes and the power of the gospel, and if you want to understand really what Christ's love and his work is all about, we have to read his word. We can trust him at his word. Fifth, it means he's a living king, a, a listening king. Notice, look at David's prayer. What he's really saying is, Lord, I don't think I can live up to all this. I can't. Without your help, in all that you've just promised, outside of you, I can never consistently live this way. I mean, think about it. God is saying, you are going to be a king forever. That's a tremendous amount of pressure. He's saying, there's no way that I, by myself, I alone can live consistently like this. Mature me. He's praying. It's a prayer. That means that we have to pray because he hears and he empowers and he's powerful to promise and he's powerful to do great things in you, to shape you, to mature you, to grow you. Even the very desire to mature in Christ is not something that we can generate on our own. It's something that the Spirit of God gives. He opens our hearts and he empowers. And lastly, when he's doing that, you know. You know why? Because a life is, it's a life marked with joy. Because God is a joyful king. And no, notice, the joy does not come a part of suffering. David, we just said earlier in the sermon, David is constantly on the run. He's living in caves. He's fighting in wars. There's conspiracies in his life. He's constantly at, in battle. He's constantly suffering. But it's the joy that comes through suffering that lasts. It's the joy that comes through sorrow that lasts. It's the joy that comes through weakness that lasts. So if you're asking yourself, why don't I experience joy in my life? You know why? You're still trying to do it. You're still trying to build the kingdom. You're still trying to build a temple on your own. You're still trying to do it on your own. That's tremendous pressure. Leads to tremendous fatigue and anxiety. But this is a joyful king. The gospel infuses joy into the depths of our being as something that lasts forever. It lasts. 
And the joy continues to grow. It begins first as a seed. And sometimes for seeds to grow, it needs to break down. It needs to go to the depths. But out sprouts oaks of righteousness. It's a seed that starts out, and it it goes through sin and through sorrow, but bursts into eternity forever. Friends, this is really a precursor to our series on the Advent as we continue on in the series on the life of David. And as we head into the uh, Advent, the Advent, again, means that we're expecting, we're anticipating the coming king. That's the actual meaning of Christmas. It's what we celebrate when we're celebrating Christmas. Christmas is a celebration of the coming of the king. Do you see him? Do you know him? Do you act in accordance with his word? You've got to be different because of that. Let your life be moved and compelled and transformed because of that. Because he's building us as a body into a lasting kingdom. And if that's the case, that means he is the king. So let's bow before him. Will you do that with me? Let's pray.